Stu Does America. Follow the election insanity with State of the Race. New episode coming tomorrow, wherever you get your podcasts. It's under the Studios America stream. You get it already, plus you get this show. So why wouldn't you do that? It's all free. You can also catch us on YouTube as well as youtube.com slash America. That's where you go. Subscribe there, like the videos, do all the things that good podcast listeners do. Mayor John Huffman of South Lake, Texas, joins us to talk about his run for Congress, the border, and more. Argentina has their new president going to Davos. It's been very interesting. We'll give you a preview and a little recap of what he said. But we start by doing electric vehicles versus the weather. Like the recent Philadelphia Eagles games I suffered through, the matchup was not that close, unfortunately, between EVs and the weather. You know, there's this thing that happens in America, and I don't know that people are familiar with it, but it's called winter. And what happens in winter is it gets cold outside. And a lot of things don't work so well outside when it's cold. Your hands, you can barely feel your fingers. No one wants to be outside. Who wants to go outside and shovel? Uh, No one wants to do that. But you do expect your car to run because if you're out on the road and you run out of gas or in this case electricity, there's no heat. And then you're basically outside and in real trouble. People die when this stuff happens. Now, If you happen to have an electric vehicle, you may have noticed some interesting things like they did in Chicago. And one of my favorite guys you're going to meet here, um, he just he really encapsulates the encapsulates this problem really well. Watch. Electric cars may be the way of the future, but it's clear there are some problems when it comes to charging them in Chicago's deep freeze. Oh, we got a bunch of dead robots out here. (laughs) Dead Dead Teslas packed the parking lot at this Tesla supercharging station in Oak Brook, a scene mirrored at other supercharging stations around the Chicago area. Man, this is crazy. It's it's, it's a disaster. Seriously. With temperatures falling into the negative double digits, these charging ports have stopped charging, leaving many Tesla owners stranded here in long lines since Sunday. Nothing, no juice, it's still on zero percent, and this is like three hours this morning being out here, after being out here eight hours yesterday. Has it been charging? No, not at all. It just isn't working. At all. (laughs) It's just frozen, and so I'm now getting it towed to the um, Tesla service center because that's my only option at this point. <laughs> Uh-oh. We got a lot of dead robots out here. Um, <laughs> you know, it's true. And you'd think, um, it, you know, even when the cars are working, the port, the charging ports aren't. That's kind of a problem. And it wasn't just one report, because, of course, you could have one charging set of charging ports that don't work. This has been a big problem around the country as it's got colder and colder. Electric vehicles just don't work as well in the cold. Kind of an issue if you're in the north of this country. Honestly, it's been really cold here. We had a we had wind chills in Texas, where, you know, uh, near Dallas, of negative degrees over the past few days. Uh, that we're not used to seeing that. Um, temperatures in you know the, the low teens and the single digits. I mean. You know, this stuff is going to affect a lot of people. And if you happen to live in uh, live up north and have an electric vehicle, it gets much, much more difficult. Even the New York Times was covering it. Electric car owners confront a harsh foe, cold weather. <laughs> I mean, what do we think? What world? First of all, I was told there was going to be no more snow. I thought global warming was going to get rid of all of this. Wasn't that the thing that they told us a few months ago? And now here we are. Now it's all cold and snowy all the time. I lose track. 
Let me give you some of the. This is from the New York Times, too. This is not some conservative publication that uh, hunted and searched for the people who hated electric vehicles the most, went to big oil themselves and asked them the question. This is from the New York Times. Quote, when it's cold like this, cars aren't functioning well. Chargers aren't functioning well. And people don't function so well either, said Javed Spencer, an Uber driver, who said he had done little else in the last three days besides charge his rent. Chevy Bolt and wonder about being stranded with a dead battery again. I mean, look, just having a Chevy Bolt or Volt, is it Bolt or Volt? I don't know. I think there's two of them. Just having that in and of itself is depressing. Okay, and then you have to deal with it dying on the side of the road. It's even worse. Mr. Spencer, 27, said he sent out uh, set out on Sunday for a charging station with 30 miles left on his battery. Plenty of time to get there. However, within minutes, his battery was dead. (laughs) He had to have the car towed to the station. When I finally plugged it in, it wasn't getting any charge, he said. Recharging the battery, which usually takes Mr. Spencer an hour, took five hours. And this is one of the things, you know, if you've never driven an electric car or you've never, you know, known someone who's had one, uh, one of the features that I get... People who like them tell me about all the times. You know exactly how far you have until you get to the you need to get to the charging station. If it's 22 miles away and your thing says 30 miles, you're totally fine. It'll get you right there. Well, apparently not in the cold. And people are thinking they're going to make it there, and they think they're going to be able to get their car charged. And then they get there, and the charger doesn't work, or there's a long line, and they can't get through it. Uh, Nick Sethi, a 35-year-old engineer in Chicago, said he had found his f- Tesla. F- frozen shut. He spent an hour in minus five degree temperatures struggling with the locks. Now, in some degree, that's a problem with every car, I suppose, but apparently particularly bad with the Tesla. Finally, he was able to chisel out the embedded trunk handle to open it, clambering in his and driving his Model Y long range SUV five miles to the closest supercharging station. Okay, great. He made it, right? Well, he joined a long line of Tesla drivers. All 12 charging posts were occupied with drivers slowing the process down slightly by staying inside their vehicles with their heat on high. I mean, this is comedy. This is when you want to fill your car up with gas. You pull up to the pump. You put the pump in. You let the thing run. I'm telling I don't I know this is maybe not the best practice. I'm back in that car where it's nice and toasty till the thing stops. Then I'm coming back out. Will my car blow up? Will I light someone next to me on fire? That's not really my concern. My concern is my own personal comfort. Okay, I want you to know that it's always my top concern. And so I try to address that as much as possible. Jocelyn Rivera was also experiencing a bit of buyer's remorse. She sat with the heat blasting inside her 2023 Tesla Model 3, and she juiced up the battery. If you're waiting in that line and you only have 50 miles, you're not going to make it. Now, it's not a, mind you, it's not a 50-mile-long line. Just all of these readings are completely wrong. Um, She says that she had seen a Tesla run out of battery shortly after a uh, driver attempted to cut the line. In normal conditions, Ms. Rivera's car can drive up to 273 miles on a single 30-minute charge. Hmm. Um, This week, Ms. Rivera said she had awakened to find about a third of her battery had drained from the overnight cold. How many times has this happened to you with your gas-powered car? You have a full tank, it gets cold, you come back out, and you have like half a tank. Happens to everyone all the time. As temperatures plummeted, she spent hours every morning waiting in line and recharging the battery. It's kind of like, 
I don't really want a Tesla, she said. A lot of people are saying that right now. And like, you know, I have a friend who has a Tesla. He charges it in his house, like in his garage. And I mean, at least it's a little bit, at least you know you're to get to a plug. Um, so maybe that's okay. But if you're in a city, especially where you don't have that sort of ability, you don't have someplace you can just plug it in. You have to go to a charging station every single time you want to charge it. This is a nightmare. This is a nightmare for people. And we're talking about real consequences. If you get stuck out in the cold uh, while your car is, ch- is charging, I mean, you know, people can really have a tough time. We saw the, uh, the really cold temperatures at the Chiefs game the other day. Something like 15 people went to the hospital. This is like, you know, serious business when it gets cold. I know we're all afraid of the 0.7 degrees Celsius temperature rise over the past century and everything. That's not going to help you that much when it's minus 18. That's just the facts of the matter. And, you know, if you run out of gas uh, in a gas-powered car, at the very least, someone can bring you, a, t- a, 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 you know, a can of gas, right? They can bring the little, you know, gas, they get the, uh, fill the thing up. They, I mean, I, look, I've run out of gas a couple times in my life. Um, you can bring the gas, you put, put a little bit in, you can get it, make it to the gas station, you're in, you're out, it's over. With an electric car, you're talking about a long process, and if you're in a line, you might not get that thing charged at all. And of course, this is what we're talking about now with batteries that we know over time will degrade. What happens with the eight and nine year old vehicle? If this is happening with new vehicles now, imagine what the, the resale value is going to be when these things are charging and they never get above 70% of their projected range. It's not going to be pretty. Um, now, Look, none of this would be a big deal, per se, if they weren't working so hard to force you to drive these things, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with electric cars. They're pretty cool sometimes. I mean, they're really fast. They're, they can be really comfortable. They can, uh, they're really quiet. There's a lot to like about an electric car for certain people for certain uses. I met, mentioned a friend of mine who has one. And it works great for him. He plugs it in in his house overnight. He doesn't drive that much. He doesn't have a long way to go. It works wherever he needs to bring it. And that's great for him. It's not great for everybody else, though. And that's kind of the problem. That's why you don't mandate things. I mean, how many times have we talked over the past few years? This show's been on for, what, four years now? We've talked a million times about mandates. It's okay to do things, but don't force people to do them too. This is like, you know, the example I always bring up is the food pyramid. The food pyramid, like, does anybody pay attention to the food pyramid? I know I don't. Obviously, look at me. Uh, I definitely don't. Um, But... It's it's a it was a I don't even think it exists anymore. I think they've got Michelle Obama changed it into I don't I don't know what she changed it into uh, something else. But uh, I had a bunch of jokes there, and you should be happy I did not go to any of them. Um, she <laughs> Michelle Obama changed it, but the food pyramid was this government recommendation, right? You should eat this many servings of this and this many servings of fruits and vegetables, and here you go, blah blah blah. And look, it sat there for decades. And it was kind of a guideline. There's all sorts of problems of how they came up with that guideline, whether it was actually the right thing for people to be doing. Forget all that for a moment. My point is the government made a recommendation and people could look at it and say, hmm, all right, I'll do that. Or hmm, screw you, I'm going to Arby's. The point is you can make your own decisions. And I don't think people got angry at the food pyramid. Why? They didn't try to mandate the food pyramid. If you don't mandate things, people, generally speaking, will look at you and say, well, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do it. 
Uh, but I'm not going to get angry about it either. Electric cars, another story. They're trying to force these things on you and on companies. And it's backfiring, I think, in a big, big way. And of course, you know, Joe Biden is trying to push electric vehicles, as is everybody on the left. Yet they won't embrace the one company who's actually selling them, which is Tesla. Why? Because Elon Musk doesn't use enough union employees. He's like, like, oh, the world is going to end. It's the most existential threat we face. We have to do everything we can with the exception of eliminating our, our personal private jet flights, because those don't count. We got to do all of those things, but we're not going to, the one person who seems to have cracked the code on electric vehicles to make people actually want them, we're going to freeze them out, uh, no pun intended, and we're not going to let them have any of the benefits. We're going to screw them over, over and over again because they don't use union employees. Because what is this really about? Of course, it's really about politics, right? It's really about politics and it's really about control. Um, now, of course, this pisses off uh, Elon Musk to no end, as you may remember from this particular talk. Tesla has done more to help the environment than uh, all other companies combined. Uh, it would be fair to say that, therefore, as a leader of the company, I've done more for the environment than everyone else, any single human on Earth. How do you feel about that? <laughs> no, no, I, no, how do I feel about that? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm asking you personally how you feel about that, because this goes, we were talking about power and influence and... I'm and saying, I'm saying what, I, what, what I care about is the, the reality of goodness, not the perception of it. And what I see all over the place is people who care about looking good while mm -hmm. doing evil. Them. Mm. It's powerful. And you know, look, he's talked about this before. He, the, the, uh, the Biden administration is freezing him out on this stuff. And look, it's not my view, probably not your view, that uh, electric cars are going to save the world. But it is Elon's view, and it is supposedly the Biden's view. And if all of this were true, it's like Elon was operating under this idea that they were being honest when clearly they weren't. If they were, then all they would be doing is showering praise on Elon Musk. But, you know, he had a couple tweets they didn't like. So now, well, the existential threat, it's not really, uh, you know, all of us dying. It's that it's that you hurt somebody's feelings uh, in, in D.C. It's just upside down. Um, and this is how it goes. You know, they, they set up a bunch of mandates and they don't consider the consequences. Uh, and now these companies are trying starting to feel those consequences. One recently is Hertz. Hertz, the rental car company. They are reversing course on electric vehicles. They announced in October 2021, you may remember the fanfare, they would buy 100,000 Teslas. And they had Tom Brady in their advertising campaign. They said the new Hertz is here. They said they plan to order up to 175,000 electric vehicles from General Motors over five years, 65,000 EVs from Polestar over five years. Well, what's the newest update on that one? They are now selling 20,000 electric vehicles from its U.S. rental fleet. They uh, are saying that they are going to spend a portion of the proceeds from the EV sales on gas-powered internal combustion engine vehicles to meet customer demand because customers don't want that. I mean, think about that. You're renting a car. The last thing you want to do is, where do I have to go to get this thing charged? This is going to be the biggest pain in the butt. I just want to go to a gas station and drive where I want to go. Um, the company cited expenses related to collision and damage primarily associated with EVs and that residual values for the vehicles generally falling throughout the quarter greater than previously expected. Kind of a disaster for a company like Hertz. This is the problem. Over and over again, we force this on, on a, they're, they're trying to jam this stuff down our throats all the time. 
And over and over again, we want to resist this type of uh, ridiculous regulation. There's no need for it. Look, as Elon Musk has, I think, pretty clearly proved, if you make a good electric car that people want, they'll just buy it. They'll just buy it. You know, the friend I mentioned a couple of times, he's no hardcore liberal. He's not out there like going out for the environment and trying to save everybody. He just likes the car. It's fast. He thinks it's cool. He doesn't have to stop at the gas station. There's some things to like about this. And for some people, it will work. But if you let people make the decision themselves, they will embrace these things. Eventually, when the, when the, the, the technology is there, People will say, yeah, that looks great. I mean, the best example of this are LED lights. LED lights came along. You know, they tried to force fluorescent lights down your throat for years and years and years and years, and everybody hated them. And then LED lights came on, and, like, they had lower energy, and they lasted forever, and they eventually got them to be able to give off the type of light that, you know, human beings desire in their homes. And then they just basically sell LEDs all all the time. People want to buy them. Right. It wasn't about the law. They tried to change the laws to screw people over and get it away from incandescence. It wasn't about that change. It wasn't about the law. It was about superior technology and people just deciding they wanted something different. And look, I don't know if the electric vehicle thing is going to work. Every company says they're going to stop making internal combustion engines. Man, I just don't think that's where the people are right now. We will see. And until we get something really great that everyone wants to drive, something with all the features that you might want, you know, I, I think we're still going to struggle uh, on trying to force this stuff down people's throats. Eventually, we'll get to the time where we have something really great and everyone will unite and want to buy the exact same car. Like, eventually, when they come out with the solar roller. Hey, check out the new model from Hyundai. They call it the Hyundai Solar Roller. Your perfect everyday automobile that won't hurt the environment because it runs on 100% solar power. Warning. Do not drive the solar roller at night. Do not drive the solar roller through a tunnel. Do not drive the solar roller under long stretches of trees. Do not drive the solar roller through Alaska or Seattle. Do not leave your home and your solar roller within four hours of dusk or dawn. Do not drive the solar roller up a hill more than 17 degrees in incline. Do not drive the solar roller up a hill. If the solar roller begins to overheat, run. Do not put your thumb over the solar roller's solar-tastic solar panel. Do not attempt to drive the solar roller above its top speed of 32 miles per hour. The solar roller will only reach its top speed of 32 miles per hour, driving downhill during a Category 4 hurricane. The solar roller may spontaneously combust if driven over 23 miles per hour. Do not eat meat in the solar roller. Do not have sexual relations in the solar roller. You will not have sexual relations if you own a solar roller. Do not verbally assault the solar roller. You will want to verbally assault your solar roller. The solar roller only comes in silver. This is because it is entirely constructed of grade V tinfoil and should not be chewed, put in the microwave, or made into tinfoil balls. That's right. It's the new Hyundai Solar Roller. It loves the environment, and it loves you. The solar roller loves you. You will not love the solar roller. Gotta get me one of those. Uh, 60% of U.S. pork production comes from one company. And guess who owns them? 
the Chinese. Yeah. And those hogs are given a chemical that I am not even going to attempt to pronounce. But it's banned in 160 countries, including China. And you can find it in your grocery store every single day. Yay, yay, yay. Look, there's a better way. Let me tell you about Moinkbox, M-O-I-N-K, Moo and Oink put together, Moinkbox. In case you're wondering about where that name came from, well, Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon. Straight to your door, Moink farmers farm like your grandparents did, and as a result, their meat tastes like it should because the family farm does it better. Uh, you know, I, I cook meat for the family all the time. They love the stuff from Moinkbox. It's the best uh, meat that they have, and, you know, Moink Moink really makes a difference. It's a difference that you can taste and you're helping family farms stay independent as well. Keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com stew right now. Listeners to this program, get two free steaks in your first box. It's the best steak you'll ever taste, but is limited for uh, just a little bit. So don't miss out on moinkbox.com, moinkbox.com stew. It's moinkbox.com stew. Happy to welcome in to the studio the mayor of South Lake, Texas, running for Congress, John Huffman. John, thanks for coming, so much for coming on the program today. Thank you, Stu. It's an honor to be here, man. Yeah, this is a big thing. Uh, you're running for Congress, yes, um, and uh, you know this is a, a an important time. We do need really uh, solid leadership in Congress, and I, I know I, you're going to try to provide that. Um, it's hard to say. We, we just we just got out of a, a day today where the Republican Party passed yet another spending bill. Um, we just had a, this big incident where they threw out the Speaker of the House over almost identical spending bill. Yeah. And now we're pushing another one of these things through with almost help of tons and tons of Democrats. Yeah. The Republican Party seems to have lost their way when it comes to fiscal responsibility. There's a lot of th important things I think Republicans do stand for still, yes. but a lot of Republicans that go to Washington seem to forget about this. Is that still important? You know, I, I, I'd like to think so. You know, I think the important thing when we talk about budgeting is like, let's go back to baseline budgeting. It's like what we do in the city of South. Like we have a phenomenal budgeting process, um, but everyone has to justify what they spend and what they need based on, so starting from zero, right? Based on mm. what we can actually justify. So there's no like, hey, I need this amount of money because we had this last year. Uh, and, and really the, the, the results sort of speak for themselves. Southlake is one of two cities in the state of Texas that have a AAA bond rating from all three ratings agencies. Mm. We're a great credit risk because we manage things so conservatively. We pay cash for 80% of our capital projects in the city, mm -hmm. roads, uh, bridges, things like that. That's almost all cash. We manage conservatively because it matters. It matters because we're fiduciaries for taxpayer dollars. We've got to get back to that mindset in Congress that we are fiduciaries for the taxpayer, which means, as you know, that we do what's in the best interest of the taxpayers. And that has got to be, I mean, not just cutting the budget, but like burning it down. <laughs> right, right. I mean, yeah. it, 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 we've got to start from scratch because we're piling up trillions and trillions of dollars in debt. What do we think is going to happen? Yeah, it, it's so natural for people like you. Oh, I had, uh, you know, $100 million last year. We better spend $100 million so we can get 105 next year. Yeah. Very natural human instinct, I think, but a real failure for yes. government, especially when you're spending someone else's money, and you're not spending it on really important things like the border, right? right. Like, we can't come to some, there's no border provisions in this spending bill at all. Uh, you went to the border recently. Yes. You've seen it. I mean, this this is out of control to a level we've, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've never seen anything like this. No, I, I totally agree. And the border, I mean, I, I went to the, actually, before this race was a thing, I went down to the border. Mm. I wanted to meet with some 
mayors and I wanted to meet with Border Patrol because I feel like part of my job as mayor is to use my platform to talk to constituents about what matters, right? And I wanted to see this place for myself, what was going on. And I left with a, a, a just a very deep certainty that it, you know, border crisis, I think, is a misnomer. It sounds too regionalized. Mm. This is a national crisis yeah. that's at the border. This should be everyone's top issue. I know you talk a lot about it. Everyone on the blaze does, which is great. Um, and, and the tragic thing is they could fix it tomorrow. Like the border patrol agents were very clear. We know how to fix this. The Biden administration won't let us. And you ask why? Why, why, why if, the, if the policy fixes like remain in Mexico and like we had under President Trump, mm -hmm. um, like simple things could really make a huge difference. Why aren't they doing it? Um, and I think the answer is clear. They're intentionally trying to destabilize this country with millions and millions of illegal immigrants that they hope to turn into Democratic voters. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the border has to be first. And, and it's interesting. You make a good point about the spending. Why do we pay for all this extraneous stuff? <laughs> And leave out the massive priorities. Right. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, as we were going through this uh, anti-Israel, real, real woke stuff that was happening on on campuses like Harvard and Penn, where these presidents couldn't even say that uh, yeah, anti-Semitism was 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 hatred. <laughs> this bigotry. is like the easiest question of all time. Like, you want to go on Jeopardy and get a question that's so easy. <laughs> yeah, you can't say we want to kill all the Jews. No. That that should be like the easiest question you've ever been asked as the head of a university. Yeah, the million-dollar question, yeah. like really simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they couldn't do it. Right. And so I dug into some of their prospectuses and I saw the. I mean, Harvard has almost a billion dollars in federal grants every year. I'm like, this is incredible. Okay, we'll make it simple. I'll tell you what. If the president can stand up and say anti-Semitism violates their bigotry policy, <laughs> right. you get some money. How about that, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But we, we, we fund this stuff, and that's a small line item, and, and we leave the border wide open, and, um, and, and our roads and bridges still underfunded. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's hey, absolutely tragic. I, I talked about this a little bit last night when it comes to affirmative action. Um, and you get to this point where now the left has so left the reservation, and I know that's politically incorrect to use, but I'm gonna use it anyway. They've, they've gone so far and so crazy to this idea that you know, skin color now is the most important thing. And we yeah. were told the opposite our that's entire right. lives. They, they now, I mean, it, the Israel stuff is incredible. The people, what they are saying since October 7th, which we think would be a uniting thing for all people to say, okay, yeah. look, we might not like everything that Israel does, or we, you know, that's really for us to criticize. It's their country, but, right. but like, we might not love everything. You might be opposed to some policies in Israel, but like, you can certainly understand they have to defend themselves and defend their people from being murdered in their homes, right? Like, this is a very <laughs> basic uniting thing that everyone yeah. should be able to come together. And instead we're getting these protests all across the country that are as fringy as anything you saw in Charlottesville times 10, and That's they're happening right. in campus after campus after campus. That, I mean, we, we are lost. Totally lost, and it, it makes you question the education education system in a real way. Hmm. Um, so so when October 7th happened, I, I, I put out a statement. I thought it was pretty simple statement. I mean, it was just such an easy issue, just saying, hey, we support Israel, <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it got a ton of fire um, from the left. Uh, but I went to go speak at the Chabad in Southlake at their first Shabbat service after October 7th. And I'm not speechless often, but standing mm -hmm. there in front of a hundred uh, of our Jewish folks and, and after that attack, I was speechless and it was really hard. But I, I felt it was important as mayor just to tell them that they're not alone. Right, that it feels like maybe when they look in the media, it's them against the world, but it's not. It's them and us and free people everywhere versus the terrorists. Right, um, so just trying to make sure we have that ministry of presence to saying you're you're not alone. Yeah. But what I what I learned there as I talked to them, they see these protests and they they look at these folks who are marching in the streets and they say. 
I, I wonder if you wouldn't hide me, if you would rat me out, or if you would maybe kill me, right? It brought all of this trauma from, from generations Understandably. past. Understandably. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. So I got an email a couple of weeks later from, uh, from, from a lady asking for a ceasefire resolution. They were just doing that to all the city councils. Sure. Um, and so I responded and made it public, because it would be eventually. Uh, and I said, you know, I'll tell you what. Uh, there was a ceasefire in Israel on October the 6th. <laughs> yeah. And, and, it, and, and then Hamas chose to yeah. rape and pillage their way through music festivals and schools. Mm. And if they would like another ceasefire, my suggestion is you lay down your arms and surrender unconditionally and pray for mercy, right? Mm. And so they came to city council and they protested and they, it, was, it, be, it was a whole thing. And uh, <laughs> did you, they actually came and showed, well, yeah. you showed up to one of your events or yeah. one of your, the yeah. city council meeting? They did. And I, I, don't, I don't think any, maybe one of them was actually from South Lake. It was just right. a bunch of woke kids, yeah. you know? Okay from yeah. across DFW. Yeah. But I told him that to face to face. I was like, guys, you, you're just, you're completely wrong. This, this, is, the, this is the easiest issue. Protect uh, the Jewish right to live. It's really simple. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm always fascinated by the fact that no one seems to ask Hamas if they want a ceasefire. Like, <laughs> right. they're the one group that never is asked. It's like, they keep firing rockets whenever they can find a little opportunity to do it. They keep firing. That's right. They keep saying that if there is a ceasefire, they'll keep firing. They don't, they want a ceasefire from the Israelis. They yeah. don't want a ceasefire from themselves. Yeah. And that seems to be what a lot of these protesters are asking for, a one-sided ceasefire. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think somebody I heard a couple months ago said it perfectly. If Hamas stopped stopped fighting, nobody else dies. If Israel stops fighting, Israelite, Israelis would continue to die. Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah, no, it really is. Um, let's talk about education for a minute, because really, as you mentioned, young kids from around DFW, yeah. uh, the education system uh, is a real problem and is leading to a lot of a lot of this uh, across the board. Um, you know, I know Southlake had uh, had some battles here in the education world. I know you were part of, uh, of those battles. Yeah. Um, where do you see the state of public education these days? And, and can it be safe? We've seen some, mm. I think, some positive movement yeah. in, in certain areas, at least. What can happen here? Yeah, great question. So uh, let me say federally, one of the one of my priorities up there is going to be trying to defund the Department of Education. Yeah. I don't know what the purpose of that department was, but whatever it was, it's been failing for many years, mm -hmm. um, as demonstrated by the fact that test scores are down across the country. And oh, by the way, we have pro-Hamas protesters in all of our colleges. <laughs> right. We failed. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it didn't work. No. We, we gave it a whirl. <laughs> we did. didn't work. We gave it a whirl. Yeah. So, uh, but I do think uh, strong public school system is a backbone of, of communities, especially here in North Texas. So uh, I do think it can work. And you know, the, the, the CRT fight we had in South Lake was so instrumental and it really sparked a lot of fights across the country where parents stood up and said, no, you're not going to teach our kids that what matters most is the color of their skin or their membership in oppressed classes. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're after, right? We want you to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic. And, you know, we turned over, as you know, a 5-2 school board, mm -hmm. liberal, 5-2 liberal, 2-7-0 conservative. And they've done amazing work to get South Lake Carroll back on track to, to, to teach the basics. I think that's what we have to do. As parents all, all across this country, we have to stand up and say, we're not anti-public education. We're we're not anti-teachers because that's how the left has been twisting it. Say, oh, these, these right-wing zealots are anti-teacher, anti... No, we're not. We're not. We're very much pro-public education. That's a backbone of the community. But let's teach the basics and then let's teach real civic virtue. Like, we, the public education system was started to instill real civic virtue into the population. Let's get back to, the, to actual right and wrong, not this CRT nonsense that's teaching our kids to, to hate each other based on classes that they, you know, oppression versus oppressor. It's terrible. Yeah, no, that's, it's, it's definitely the wrong direction. Um, you know, how do you feel about, uh, you know, because I think you mentioned school, you know, 
public schools is mm-hmm. a foundation of a community, of course. Um, I think that's true. Um, also, of course, you know, parent parenting is part of that, too. 100%. Um, school choice has made a real set of moves over the past few years. Yeah. I will say, you know, we've been talking about these issues for, it seems like, forever. Yeah. I never thought we'd see movement on the public, uh, on school choice thing. The, I, and I, just because it was one of those issues that conservatives would talk about, right. and then it would just fizzle. Right. And then COVID happened, yeah. and people were like, holy crap, we better do something about this. <laughs> so we've seen real movement, not yet in Texas, but we've seen it around uh, the country. Is there a future for school choice? Yeah. Is that something that can, where there can be pressures federally to, 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 to advance that cause? Yeah, I think so. So we homeschool our kids. We have for 10 years. I say we. My wife does. I'm taking no credit for that, to be clear. Um, so, but she, she has a burden for it. She loves it. And the homeschool community is huge in North Texas oh, and, yeah. and growing across the country. Private schools, public schools. We're believers in school choice in the sense that it's important that there's competition. And I do think uh, for a long time, public schools, especially the big teachers unions, have benefited from a lack of competition. Yes. So competition is good in anything. I'm a, I'm a free market guy. Let's get some competition in there. And I think the great public school systems like South Lake Carroll will rise to the top. And I think it's also vitally important that parents are given the option and, and financially supported with the option to, to choose the education that's best for their kids. That's mm-hmm. part of our system too. Um, let me hit you with one other uh, random one here before you go. And you give a background in law. Yes, sir. Um, uh, the, in the Supreme Court right now, we're talking about the, uh, the Chevron uh, deference uh, case that's up there right now. And I think this is a fundamental problem that we have in our government. And, and you go back to this decision, which basically says, you know, if you, you can probably explain it a heck of a lot better than I can, but basically gives deference to these agencies, like yeah. the experts in the agencies. When there's a vague rule, yeah. we'll side with them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is just empowered all of these agencies, you mentioned the Department of Education, that's one of them, the EPA is another, there's a bunch of them that allow these organizations and, and institutions to just crack down on business, to run, yes. uh, to, to, to screw with the economy, to yes. screw with people's individual choices, to screw with their freedoms over and over and over again. I mean, are you hopeful for this decision to come out the right way? And, and what, can, what can we do to put control back in the hands of Congress where, it's, where it belongs. 100%. Well, Congress has got to exercise the power of the purse. And yes, I am hopeful for this decision to give Congress some some legal leeway to, to make some changes. You know, when I, I have a small construction business now, um, but prior to that, I practiced law in healthcare, right as Obamacare was was, okay. was passing. That must have been fun. It was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. And it was really interesting to watch because the, the law passed, but almost every provision of the law had a note that said the secretary shall issue rules related to XYZ. And so for every six months or so after that, the Secretary of Health and Human Services would write a giant thousand page reg that had the full force of law uh, that was written by bureaucrats that we didn't vote for, we couldn't fire, and who do not think they work for us. And that is a huge, huge problem. The the reality is, I don't know what the percentage is, but I'm guessing north of 95% of the laws that you and I live under now, and all your your listeners and and viewers, are written by administrative bureaucrats. Mm. Who are wild. It's broken, it's totally broken. So we've got to, and that's where the weaponized deep state, if you will, the weaponized federal government comes from, that's where they're most powerful. So we've gotta dial that back, and we gotta use the power of the purse to do it. If if an agency is going to issue mandates with the full force and credit of the law that that don't go with the the, um, will of Congress who are elected by the people, then they've gotta be defunded. Hmm. I I hope there will be something done on this because it feels like it's one of these things that we talk about. You mentioned healthcare, I mean, we talked for years and years and years and years about repealing Obamacare, got the chance to do it, 
weren't able to do it. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of frustration out there uh, for people who look at Republicans, uh, people on the right look at Republicans and say, look, you're, yeah, you're better than Joe Biden. Well, well, but what kind of hurdle is that to clear? <laughs> we want something else to happen. Yes. And I know that's what you want to do in Washington. Where can people go if they want to help out the campaign? It's johnhuffman.com, real simple, my first and last name. I would love the help. We want to get up to D.C. We'll send a, an experienced, proven conservative fighter. What we've done well in North Texas and in South Lake, I want to do in D.C. I want to get this country back on track. Awesome. John Huffman, johnhuffman.com uh, from South Lake, Texas. John, thanks so much for going, uh, coming on the show, and good luck on the race. Thanks, dude. It was an honor. Appreciate you. Do you remember the ecstasy of electing Joe Biden? That's a legitimate headline. <laughs> I wasn't really asking you. I, I didn't think necessarily you had that ecstasy, but that's apparently what people on the left felt when they uh, put a doddering old fool into the White House? That's what they felt? Ecstasy? Maybe they were on ecstasy. That I would believe. Um, how, do you remember the ecstasy of electing Joe Biden, how the coalition that defeated Donald Trump crumbled? And, and the polling is showing that. Now, there was another interesting poll that came out, and it is sort of the thing the Democrats are hanging their hat on, and the, it's the, sort of the last frontier for Trump. I mean, there was a while where other Republican challengers, this is before, you go back to before the indictments in particular, other Republican challengers were performing better in general election polling than Donald Trump was. And that was the case for a long time. You can see that sometimes uh, in the polling now. I mean, like Haley's a little, polls a little bit better than Donald Trump. Um, but it's honestly, at this point, they're all ahead. All the candidates are ahead. So the electability argument has sort of crumbled. And of course, this is a big part of the Ron DeSantis argument to be president, right? Like, well, he can actually get elected and Trump can't. That, was, that looked true in the polling for a long time, has not looked true recently. But putting all that aside, there was a poll that came out that said Joe Biden would lose to Donald Trump. Another one. This has been poll after poll after poll. And I've gone through this with you before. But this is the best polling position Donald Trump has ever been in in any of his runs for president. Where he is right now is the best he's ever looked. That includes 2016 or 2020. He did not look this good. Uh, so this is a high point for Donald Trump. Um, that being said, the poll said, yes, he would beat Joe Biden. However, if he does get convicted of a crime, he would then lose to Joe Biden. And you might say, well, how can anyone do believe that? I mean, this is obviously some political persecution. Well, I mean, I think that is the way we feel about it here um, uh, on the right a lot. And a lot of times people in the middle don't necessarily feel the same way. A lot of it will pay, uh, you know, depend on how it plays out once they actually get these things rolling, which are coming very, very uh, soon. We also had uh, Malay. Do you remember the ecstasy of Malay getting uh, elected in Argentina? Actually, that one kind of had some ecstasy for some people, particularly in Argentina. We're like, please help us. Uh, he went to Davos and he took him on. Didn't hold back at all. I want to give you a couple of clips from this. This is uh, uh, Malay talking about collectivism. The main leaders of the Western world have abandoned the model of freedom for different versions of what we call collectivism. Yep. We're here to tell you that collectivist experiments are never the solution to the problems that afflict the citizens of the world. Rather, they are the root cause. Fact check. True. Mm hmm. Yeah. Very, very, very true. We also have him talking about the market. And, you know, a lot of people when things don't ha when things happen in a way that they don't like, 
people like to say, well, it was a market failure, a market failure. Capitalism has failed us once again. Here's Malay talking about market failures. The market is a mechanism for social cooperation where you voluntarily exchange ownership rights. Therefore, based on this definition, talking about a market failure is an oxymoron. There are no market failures. If transactions are voluntary, the only context in which there can be a market failure is if there is coercion. And the only one that is able to coerce generally is the state, which holds a monopoly on violence. Consequently, if someone considers that there is a market failure, I would suggest that they check to see if the state is intervention involved. Mm. Usually the case. Uh, look, I hope this works out. He's a good talker. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, I really hope he doesn't screw this up because then they're going to blame capitalism for the next 50 years. But a promising start for Millet. Well, with the introduction of Gerard Mayo, who replaces Bill Belichick, who won, of course, six Super Bowls, lost one to the Philadelphia Eagles and lost a couple of others, some, some other team. Um, anyway, uh, he, they hired him and they have now broken the color barrier. So I, I, congratulations to the, the barrier for being broken. Um, Mayo becomes the NFL's youngest head coach at age 37 and it's uh, fourth black coach. Uh, and the owner, Robert Kraft, said, I'm really colorblind. Like, I, I want to get the best people I can get. I chose the best head coach for this organization. He happens to be a man of color, but I chose him because I believe he's the best to do the job. He said, merit tells me that I should hire him, not a skin color. Now, I don't know. That used to be the type of thing you'd be like, okay, yeah. We talked about this yesterday. This is a perfect example of what we talked about yesterday. Uh, that would be a, the type of thing you would praise. Instead, his own coach called him out in the middle of the press conference as he's getting hired and says, well, I do see color because I believe if you don't see color, you can't see racism. Which I... No, you can't engage in racism if you don't see color. And again, like, let's be honest, it's a phrase. You do see color. The point is not that you don't see color, it's that you don't care about it. You're not obsessed with it 24 hours a day. It's not the only thing that matters to you. In fact, it matters very, very, very little, if at all. I think the goal is zero, but maybe it matters a little bit. I don't know why, but okay, you want to say there's some cultural difference you want to point out. Again, I, I just don't even understand that way of thinking, but I know a lot of people do. I, I, every time I go on you know, some food ordering app, I get a list of, the, the, here, do you want to order, order from Pakistani-owned restaurants? I, I don't know. I don't, I, don't order, I don't look at the ownership of a restaurant and pick on the nationality of the owner. I'd rather just get where the go, go where the good food is. Look, if some uh, white um, you know, Italian guy is going to make the best Chinese food in town, that's where I'm going. I'm sorry. Merit, merit, merit. I don't know. Everyone else seems to think that is dead, but I, I'm going to do my best to keep it alive. I hate to break news to you once again, but Asa Hutchinson is still not running for president anymore. He, uh, as you know, we noted the other day, finished sixth in a five-person race, which isn't great. 
you know. Um, but when he dropped out, he was sort of mocked by the DNC. They said this news comes as a shock to those of us who could have sworn he had already dropped out. That's what the DNC national press secretary said. Well, we got some retribution. We got this corrected finally. Because, because he was saying bad things about Trump, he's a good Republican. See the difference? You have good Republicans and bad Republicans. The bad Republicans say good things about their candidates. The good Republicans say bad things about, about their candidates. Um, and so we had one of the dumbest people on earth, Corrine Jean-Pierre, who came out and said, President Biden has deep respect for Governor Hutchinson and admires a race that he ran. He's a man of principle. This morning, the chief of staff called to convey to the governor this and apologize for the statement that did not represent the president's views. So there you go. I just saw the saddest detail to the story after Asa Hutchinson dropped out. They said he was just driving home from Iowa by himself. It's a sad, sad story. And now you have no one to vote for. Asa Hutchinson still out of the race.